I have been lost, I mean like memorably lost, twice in my life, right? Um, once, when I was about 17, I was in the White Mountains, somewhere in that area, that's actually the exact area where we were, um, and I was with 15 or so other high schoolers, and we had some guides who knew the White Mountains, like the, the backs of their hands, um, but this particular day, the guides set us off on our own without them. They gave us a map, and they told us where we were supposed to meet them, say goodbye. So we set off on our adventure, and it was a great start. We got off on a great start. We were having lunch in this beautiful little spot called Sawyer Pond, and we made it there, and we got lunch ready. We ate. We cleaned up. As a matter of fact, we cleaned up so well that our guides could not tell we had been there when they came looking for us. So we get to the end of Sawyer Pond Road, which is on that, and it's a T. We were supposed to go right. We went left. I still don't know why we went left. We went left for a very long time. And none of the next trail, the next turn, just wasn't coming up, wasn't coming up, wasn't coming up. We took some side trails, wasn't coming up, wasn't coming up. People were starting to get a little, a little short with each other, a little anxious. Sun was starting to set. Some guys, you're not supposed to drink the water in the White Mountains because it's got parasites in it. Some of our guys were drinking water just right out of the stream. Um, it, we were like that close from Lord of the Flies. Like, <clears throat> um, so it, it was dark. We're like, all right, look, we're getting, we're getting short with each other. Let's just, we'll just make camp and we'll just get a good night's sleep and we'll try and find our way back in, in the morning. And while we're doing that, these two helicopters came over really low with their lights on. And we're like, yes, it's search and rescue. Like, we've been gone for like eight hours. Like, they're not sending out search and rescue. Um, so we spent the night, got some rest, and we somehow found our way back to that T where we should have turned right. And we just plopped down and we sat there until our guides came and found us, which eventually they did. I don't know, like, just for the record, when I was a youth pastor, I never lost a group of kids for more than like an hour. Right? <laughs> 20, 24 plus hours. So the second time, the only thing in common with the first, other than me, was Gail Kay. Okay? She was in both of these little misadventures. We were, we were newly married, and we wanted to go out and get a bite to eat. We were living in the kind of the north end of Trumbull. We wanted to go to Vazi's. Just over here. Not, right? Wanted to go to Vazi's. We'd never been there before. Um, Gail was driving, and this, so this is going to date me. I was reading a map. It's a paper thing. With, with directions on it, right? Um, so we just wanted to go get some, something to eat. And we, we never made it to Vazi's. We ended up somewhere in the south end of Bridgeport on the phone with a marriage counselor um, <laughs> trying, to, trying to, to salvage things. But um, so Gail is great with a map. And I'm great, like, once I've been somewhere, I can feel my way around. I know I have a good sense of direction, but I can't read a map to save my life. So the wrong person was given directions. And, like, when we were in the White Mountains, we had the right directions. We just chose not to follow. I don't know. I still don't know why we didn't go the way we were supposed to go. Um, but sometimes we get lost in life like that, right? We get really turned around. And we have, Jesus knew that we would do that. Jesus knew that we would choose to go our own way. Jesus knew we would get confused. He knew that we would have a set of directions, say, hmm, those sound good, but I'm going to go this way. Thankfully, 
Jesus is gracious, and he gives us second and third and 23rd chances. And he provided this really great list of, of instructions in his Bible. The Bible's way more than a set of instructions, but what we're going to do is take a look at, over the, the coming weeks, at the book of Matthew. And specifically, we're going to look at these directional commands that Jesus had for us. Jesus said things like, go, turn, do not enter. This morning, we're going to look at the phrase, come follow me. Those were Jesus' directions to, to a couple guys. Um, so before we get there, I want to give you a little, little background on the book of Matthew and Matthew himself. Matthew, uh, sometimes he's referred to as Levi, depending on which gospel you're reading, was a tax collector. So tax collector means that he was a thief and he was a traitor. So think of like Bernie Madoff and taking the money and giving it to ISIS. Like that's how, that's how he was viewed in, in his culture. And Jesus comes upon him and says, I want you with me now. The, the life transformation that had to take place in Matthew's heart and in his mind was just nothing short of, of miraculous. Matthew also had some skills, right? He was a tax collector, so he had to keep really fine, detailed records. He had the same skills as the scribes, a group of religious leaders did in his day. So he was uniquely qualified to capture these events of Jesus' life in, in great, accurate detail. The book was written, experts tell us, between 50 and 60 A.D., and what's critical about when it was written is it's so close to the time of Jesus' life and death and resurrection that there are eyewitnesses. People could verify, yeah, that's right, what Matthew's saying is accurate. Or somebody could have said, Matthew's making this stuff up. It's a crock. But nobody ever, nobody's done that, right? So that's one of the great, these, these books that were written that close to the actual life and times of Jesus, we can have that much more, um, that much more confidence in them. So the book of Matthew is a set provides a set of directions for disciples for all time. And it, it's directions for a new community, a community that was meant to break down every racial, ethnic, cultural barrier that existed. And that community coming together in dedication, devotion, and obedience to Jesus. And at the time Matthew was writing, he was writing when this new this new faith, this new group was under immense opposition. Almost like today, very similar to like today, to where the, the values, the traditional Christian values um, and beliefs are seen as kind of on the outside looking in. We're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 4, but really quickly, Matthew 1, 2, 3 is the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus' family tree, his birth, um, John the Baptist coming on the scene saying, hey, you guys, Jesus is coming. Get ready. Here he comes. Jesus gets baptized, and then he goes off into the wilderness, and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's doing that, John is continuing his thing, and Jesus comes back, and John gets arrested. And he's put in jail, and Jesus then begins to preach. And that's where, um, that's where we pick up this story. This is Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. We're going to read through 22. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. 
land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So we are going to kind of break this up into a couple of different pieces. Uh, we have, we're going to look at Jesus, we're going to look at the four guys that he called, and we're going to look at what he called them to do. And the, the first thing that I want to talk about is the fact that uh, Jesus rarely does things the way that we would. So if we start, even where, he starts in Galilee. So you would think, back in the day, Jerusalem was the center of religious activity. That's where the rabbis had their schools, that's where the temple was, um, that if Jesus was going to come on the scene and bring about this, this revolution, that he would do it there. But he chose Galilee, which was kind of set off, and it was known for the heavy, heavy influences of these other, the, these other people, Romans, had held Galilee for a long time, and uh, the, the Greeks were currently the, or sorry, it was the Greeks, then, then the Romans, and just these foreign influences that just brought all of their, their beliefs and their values to that area. Um, so it was a dark place, um, but it wasn't like necessarily backwater or podunk. It was just separated and just not of, the people were not trying to follow the God of the Bible. So, but that's where Jesus, that's where he starts. He's not your typical rabbi. He um, doesn't have uh, official training. Um, he shows up and it's almost, you know, he, he went out to those people who the current day religion had left behind. And in doing that, he really threatened the religious establishment and it was almost like his, he took it upon himself to, to upset their, what they were doing. Um, he, there was a, a group of sayings called the traditions of men that the religious leaders had really gotten hooked on. And almost to the point, not almost to the point, definitely to the point of paying more attention to those than they were actually to the Old Testament, to, to the written word of God. So Jesus comes on the scene and he starts stirring stuff up. He's not like, he's not a good little rabbi and, and towing the company line. He's stirring stuff up. Um, and the last thing I want to point out about Jesus doing things differently is this authority and this wisdom that he had. So much so that even those who opposed him recognized it. And not only did they recognize it, but it scared the bejeebers out of them. Like to the extent that it got Jesus killed. Jesus showed up and he taught and he spoke in a way that they couldn't, that, he, that they didn't. And the people responded to Jesus in a way that they didn't respond to the religious leaders of the day. So um, shows up in Galilee, he's not your typical rabbi. And um, he's got this wisdom and this authority that people 
that people have never, never seen before. So this shouldn't surprise us, because as we look at Scripture, um, this Old Testament, New Testament, the, the book of Isaiah um, tells us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. The New Testament, got five, but God chose foolish things in this world to shame the wise. God chose weak things to shame the strong. You would think that if God was going to do something, he would go find the strongest and wisest people. That wasn't what he did. This is, this is the MO of God, that he doesn't do things the way that, um, that we expect him to. So this is, um, it's kind of hard to, to get our brains around this, right? Jesus' way is, is usually different, but it's always, it's always better. And I want to, I don't know, I want to, I want to caveat that, right? So, um, not caveat, I want to explain it a little bit further. We think about the things that Jesus did and said and the things that he still does in our life. And we think about um, the fact that he does things differently. Why, so why is it so important that he does, that he does things differently? First, I, I want to suggest to you that um, wherever, where, if you are just starting to check out who Jesus is or you've been walking with him for a long time, we, as people, will always underestimate Jesus. Jesus is always more than we think him to be, regardless, regardless of where we're at. We have no human point of reference for the, the enormity of Jesus, for the perfection of his character. Right? So wherever, whatever situation you're in, whatever perception you have of Jesus, if Jesus is bigger, Jesus is stronger, Jesus is smarter, Jesus is more capable, Jesus is more comforting, Jesus is more challenging, Jesus is more present, Jesus can do more for you right now where you are than you ever possibly could on your own. We, gotta, we have to remember that when, when we don't get the promotion that we want or the relationship that we thought was the right relationship doesn't work out or we don't get into the college, that's like our, our first choice, we get waitlisted. Um, the other thing I want to point out is that our current cultural climate places the, the feelings of the individual above everything else. If you feel something, you go do it. And that's the highest good you can do is, for, is meeting that, that need within you. And um, Jesus comes with a different message. Right? He says, deny yourself. And he says, follow me. He says, watch me, watch, watch, how, watch how I live. And if we don't have this perspective that Jesus' way, although different, is better, we don't get a prayer answered. We, something doesn't go right. I'm not talking about like the consequences of bad decisions. If we screw up, we screw up and we kind of get what's coming to us. I'm talking about like the thing like a promotion, right? If that stuff doesn't come through, we begin to question God. Is God angry with me? Does God hate me? Does God even exist? Because we have this prevailing cultural mindset that what we feel is right and best. So we have to, we have to really, really fight against that. I want to kind of um, give two, two different additional perspectives into this. The first one is, um, like, I, I am I'm a planner. I'm type A. I'm driven. I know what I want to do. I know where I want to go. So let's go. Let's get there. Um, and 
we hired a music director in the fall, a guy named Marvin. And we had a search firm, and they narrowed down a bunch of candidates, and they handed me a couple. And then I talked to them, and I, we narrowed it down to Marvin, and the teams talked to him, and he played with the band, and we, we brought him here, and he met with the band, and um, we thought he, he was our guy. And he was here for six months, and he did a fantastic job. He led us through a really difficult transition. He provided stability, and he provided strength, and he was the right guy for the right time. And he, but God had a different plan, right? And I absolutely 100% believe that God brought us Marvin to see us through that time until he could get the person ready who was supposed to be here full time. And we're working through that process right now. Like that, to me, that, like I had some serious internal work to do trying to figure out what did I screw up? I failed. I did something really wrong. And I've had some wise counsel from some pastors who have been down this road before, from some other people who said, this could have just been God's hand working this, and it could have. It is God's hand working these things. And you know, his plan is better. The second perspective I want to share with you on this is um, Romans 8, the famous passage, but in it we read that all things work together for good for those who love God. It does not say that all things are good. There are those of us in this room who have experienced unspeakable tragedy, even in the last 12 months. And I am not for a second telling you that any of that was a good thing. We do have a promise in the pages of Scripture that Jesus can work even those terrible tragedies, hardships, struggles for your good and for his glory. So that when I say Jesus' way is usually different, but it's always better, that's what I mean. All right. Um, we're going to look at what I've called Jesus' type, the guys that he the guys that he called. Sorry, I'm having trouble reading my slides. Can't read that. Oh, yeah, I can. Following Jesus is about continual learning and growth, learning about Jesus and ourselves and growing into the people that he created us to be. You can hear that and you can think, oh, that sounds kind of boring, learning. I had to take, I went to a liberal arts college, I had to take art selectives. I'm not an artsy guy. I really like music. I like movies. I had to take foreign film. I don't like foreign movies. And I had to take Art of East Asia. It was all I could do to get through those classes. That's not the kind of learning I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about like one-on-one -on -one basketball practice with Steph Curry, right? I'm talking about learning how to cook at the French Laundry with Thomas Keller. Like really stuff that you want to do that you'd be all, that you'd be all about. That's what these guys were getting themselves into, a life of learning and growth with Jesus. But again, things are not always, Jesus didn't choose the people he thought would be chosen. The four men that we read about in this passage, um, they're not your typical rabbinical students. They were, first of all, they already had careers, already established, right? They were fishermen, they were businessmen. Um, from what scholars tell us and reading different situations of them on their boats, they were relatively successful um, and they were as we read through scripture 
these four guys were brash, they were impetuous, they were self-centered. And most people who wanted to be rabbis, they went looking for a master, somebody to train them, somebody to teach them. These guys were not looking for Jesus. Jesus came looking for them. The other thing that's noteworthy about these four is their response to Jesus. They were busy. And if you concentrate in the passage on the parts where it talks about their nets, right? They were mending their nets. They were taking care of their nets. They were in the midst of their work. And they stopped. Jesus showed up and they stopped. They responded to Jesus. And then when Jesus called them, the, the phrasing, they left their nets. The original languages tell us that they left everything behind. With James and John, they left their dad. Right? They didn't, wasn't like an abandonment. They still had a relationship with him. But they, they left, they made Jesus a priority. Jesus was asking for their all. Jesus was asking for their best. And they gave it to him. Last thing that is sometimes lost about these guys, and which I was reminded of as, as I was getting ready for this message, is that they responded to Jesus in increasing measure. This interaction was not the first time Jesus had come across these guys. In the Gospel of John, there's, there's a meeting between Jesus and, and these handful of guys. And it's roughly a year in between that meeting and when he calls them to be fishers of men. In that, um, where are we? In that meeting, or sorry, in that meeting, in that year, there's a number of different things that happened. Um, they witnessed Jesus perform two different miracles, right? They witnessed him turning water into wine, lavish provision, best wine that, that could happen. Jesus, there was a wedding, they ran out of wine, Jesus turned some water into wine, and it wasn't just the kind in the box. It was the really good stuff, like $100 bottle, right? And then he heals somebody, right? So it's a matter of lavish provision and meeting somebody's basic need. He healed, he healed a sickness. Um, when, you, when they traveled, right, they walked. If you've ever done any hiking, you look around, you take in the environment, and you talk, and you get to know the people they're with. These guys spent a lot of time walking and talking with Jesus. They were with Jesus when he cleared the temple. There were a group of men who would do business in God's house. They, they were profiting from what God had set up. They would set up a money changing and people would get, they would bring in whatever they needed um, and try to exchange it with the temple coin and they were charging these exorbitant rates. So you'd pay a hundred denarii and you'd get one temple coin put in the thing. They were, rip, they were ripping people off and they were selling stuff. So Jesus comes in and he clears it. And they, the disciples learn what's important to Jesus. They learn what he's capable of and the miracles. They learn about him as they walk. They learn what um, is important to him in the clearing of the temple. Jesus, as they continue on, he invites the disciples into what they're doing. The disciples start baptizing people. Jesus is right there. They're baptizing them in the name of Jesus, but they're actually doing the work. The disciples aren't going to be just spectators. They're going to be part of this deal that Jesus is bringing about. Jesus has an interaction with a Samaritan woman. Basically somebody that Jesus had no business talking to. Culturally, religiously, ethnically, just every polar opposites from, from every perspective. But Jesus had an encounter with her, and the disciples walked into the middle of it. They didn't question it, they just watched what Jesus did. And in that, 
they learned who was important to Jesus. And lastly, at the, the culmination of that story with the Samaritan woman, um, Jesus tells them that, they said, Jesus, you must be hungry. You got to get something to eat. And he says, I have food that you know nothing about. And they were like, huh, what? Totally, totally perplexed. The disciples still had learning to do. And that's where Jesus finds them in this state. They came to Jesus in, in increasing measure. And that's how our relationship with Jesus is supposed, to, is supposed to work. The more you respond to Jesus, the more Jesus you get. The more Jesus you get, the more Jesus expects you to respond. And I really, I've tried to shake it, but as I was thinking about this and preparing this, I've just had this idea of this like crazy buffet in, in my head. And I don't know if this analogy is going to work, but here it goes. It's like this buffet that the, the more you eat, the more food you have access to. Jesus sets out this buffet for you. And the more you keep eating, he's providing, and you eat, and he brings out more. And the more he brings out, the more he expects you to eat. But it's, it's not like that, that, you know, like if you've ever been to a buffet, and I, I'm not going to say, if you, everybody's done this, so don't look at me, don't judge me. <laughs> you go to a buffet, and you take that, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go one more time. I'm going to go one more time. But there's never that feeling, right? There's never, it's always, Jesus is always providing more, always providing more, always providing more. I read a, an interesting article about a crab buffet in Alabama. Um, they were a little slow in getting refilling the chafing dishes with the crab. And when they came out, people did not conduct themselves well. They were taking more than they should have. Some, they were like starting to have words with each other and it like turned into a brawl. It just disintegrated into a brawl. Like people had like the tongs and they were like jousting with the tongs and somebody got like lacerated and there were arrests made and it was just a big, a big ugly scene. But wouldn't it be cool if that buffet that Jesus sets out for us, if we had that kind of energy, if we went after life with Jesus, if we tried to respond to Jesus with the energy that those knuckleheads went after those crab legs, right? Jesus is putting the table out for us, and, and he wants us to go after it. Um, last, last thing, last area we're going to cover. Following Jesus always leads to others following Jesus, or should always lead to others following Jesus. From my experience, people who are new to faith or are new to church are the best evangelists. And when I say evangelists, I mean sharing Jesus, telling people about Jesus, what Jesus has done for them, sharing Jesus' love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And the biblical picture I see is not that. The biblical picture I see is it's a combination. There are people who have these amazing, life-changing interactions with Jesus and go on to become rock star evangelists. But there are also people like the disciples, like these guys, who Jesus calls to be fishers of men. And a little bit over time, as they grow in their faith, they get their, evangel their ability to evangelize, their ability to share Jesus grows. The more Jesus they have, the more Jesus they give. And... Um, we, the, right now, according to research, the most effective, um, where we see the best evangelism happening is in close relationships and parents with children and in, and in close family and in close, close friends. And that makes perfect sense, right? Because those are the people that we care the most about. Those are the people that we spend the most time with. Those are the people, some of them we may even have a vested interest in, in their thriving 
and they're succeeding. And, but Jesus had that kind of heart for everybody. And as we, um, as we grow closer to him, that's the heart that develops in us. We get more of Jesus' heart in us, and our heart for people begins to grow. Our heart for all people begins to grow. And I, I wanted to take a, um, just a, a few minutes and um, ask my friend Craig to come up here and share a little bit of, of his story and how Jesus has worked this out in, in his life. So let's give him a round of applause as he's coming up. Okay, so, Craig, how you doing? Good, how you Good. doing? Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, I'm Craig. I'm, I'm one of the elders here. Uh, I'm a, uh, an accountant by trade, and I'm also a husband, a father of uh, three children, ages 34, 32, and 11, and also a proud grandfather of a two-year-old. <laughs> 34, 32, and 11. 11, yes. All right. So um, Hannah is the 11-year-old. Yes. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Hannah came to be a part of your family? Um, or your immediate family, I should say. Sorry. It, it's a, uh, a story that I never would have expected, and it, um, it goes back to uh, before Hannah was born. Uh, three years before Hannah was born, uh, her mom, my niece Tiffany, had cancer, and she was going through chemotherapy, and there was the potential that the chemotherapy could make her sterile. And there was a medication available that could help to prevent that um, that was not covered by insurance, um, and she couldn't afford it. So she talked to my wife. She was upset because she really wanted to have kids one day. And uh, my wife and I decided that we could pay for this medication. So three years later, uh, Hannah is born. And um, when that happens, her biological father is already out of the picture and uh, soon ends up in jail for a long time. He's there for another 30 years. And um, uh, when Hannah's born and she's little and my son Dan and my wife, they watch Hannah a few days a week uh, while Tiffany goes to work. And we, we do that for about two or three years. And uh, Tiffany starts making some bad choices and we kind of uh, drift apart because we're not really in agreement with how she's raising Hannah and don't have much control. And uh, over that time, when we lose touch, um, Hannah's abused, her mother's abused. She sees her mother um, arrested. Um, she's taken away from her mother by DCF. She's given to a grandmother in North Carolina that she doesn't even know. Um, Tiffany straightens out her act to some extent and gets Hannah back. Um, Hannah comes back to Connecticut, and we don't really see her too much. We see her, you know, a couple times a year at uh, 
family events, and she lives in a variety of places. The first three years of school, she's in a different school each year. And, um, and then um, mom gives up custody of Hannah to her mother, Hannah's uh, grandmother, who Hannah loves dearly. And uh, so in August of 2015, uh, grandma uh, moves with Hannah down to Florida, moves in with Hannah's aunt. Uh, things are going fairly well at that point. And um, in 2015 on Halloween, Hannah goes out trick-or-treating with everybody. And uh, that night, Hannah's sleeping in the bed with Grandma, and Grandma has a heart attack and dies. And she comes back with Connecticut, to Connecticut, back with Mom again, and 17 days later after Grandma dies, Mom dies from a drug overdose. And, uh, and then there's a, a chaotic period of time when... There's a lot of people that just don't want Hannah. She has uh, aunts and uncles that would want her, and the spouses don't. Uh, she has a family member that can take her and does, um, but it's soon discovered that that person has a criminal record, and DCF won't allow Hannah to stay there. And uh, during those years when we didn't have Hannah, uh, we took in two foster boys, and we were, um, they were 17 at the time, and we had them for a couple years until they went off to college. Um, and so, when everything kind of fell apart with DCF after mom died, and my nephew was one of the people that wanted to take her, but his wife did not want to do that. And they had figured out that there was, DCF had figured out that there was a whole scheme that Hannah was with somebody she couldn't be with. And they were coming to my, ne my nephew's house. And he called us because he knew we had already dealt with DCF and maybe we could help in some way. And we didn't really know how we were going to help, but we went to his house and... Uh, DCF came with the intent that, you know, Hannah had to go somewhere. They were going to have to take her out of her situation. And really, the way God had orchestrated things in our life, we were able to say, well, we're licensed foster parents. And we were able to step in. They gave us a, a week or so to get things organized. But those, those workers, the DCF workers, were your... DCF One of the DCF right? caseworkers was our worker from when we dealt with DCF. Um, so we, we had a, a short period of time to get things together. And um, thanks to guys at Crossroads here, Rich Gale, Scott, Bo, Bruce, um, we kind of rearranged our whole house. We had, my, my mom was up on the main floor and we moved all her stuff down to our apartment in the 
basement where the foster boys had been and we got their stuff moved out of the way and uh, we were able to make a bedroom for Hannah and people gave us furniture and we were able to get everything together uh, and have Hannah move in with us. And, uh, and, and that's how that all And you guys uh, officially adopted her? And she we officially adopted her two years later. So she's ours permanently now until we get So I, um, throughout the course of that, what impact did your relationship with Jesus have on the decisions that you were making about paying for Tiffany's meds, about taking the boys in, about taking Hannah in? Well, I think um, uh, it was just, it, it was in point of just saying yes to Jesus. Uh, you know, in, in Matthew 542, Jesus says when somebody asks you for something to give it to them and that's how we approached it when Tiffany asked us um, in the first place. We did not spend any time saying we're going to pray about this, we're going to see what happens. We, we, we just did it. It was a very short conversation with Diane and I and it was the same when we took in Hannah. It was the same, uh, it's a whole separate story, but when we took in the foster boys, it was a, a situation where a decision had to be made and it wasn't something that, that could be dragged out and, and we, we just followed. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad we did. Yeah. Um, last, I lied, one more question. Sure. What, what can we do to encourage and support you and Hannah and Diane? I uh, I had a uh, a picture, not 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 in my mind, on Facebook, um, and uh, just this past week, and uh, Nate George graduated high school this week. Congratulations, Nate! And uh, Stacy put pictures up on on Facebook of people at the graduation and I'm thinking well this is great you know he's there with his family and then I see you know Ian and Tinica are there and Scruff and Rachel are there and Tom and Gail are there and I said this is what I want for Hannah that I want people at this church to lean into her and just love her you know that she goes to school and there's a lot of great people, and they do good things. But I know when she's here, she's dealing with people that love Jesus. And that's more important than all the nice things that people could do for her. And, and I think all, all our children need that. And it's not just when I saw those pictures, and I'm thinking it's not just people that are involved in youth ministry to build into our children. I mean, it's, it's everybody. And I'm thinking, you know, when Hannah comes to church on Sunday, she's excited. She's going to joke around with Rich Gale. <laughs> and she's going to see Rudy Granada and want to give him a big hug. And that's just what it's all about, just being a community and, and helping each other. You guys give Craig a hand.
Um, so I had about another 20 minutes worth of stuff, but I'm not going to. Um, I will end with this, though. Craig and Diane are living life with Jesus. And as they spend time in the word and they spend time praying and thinking, their heart grew. And their heart grew to the point where they're giving money away and they're taking kids in and they're loving people in real ways. Right? The more we respond to Jesus, the more Jesus we get. The more Jesus we get, the more he's going to expect us to respond. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for Craig and for Diane and Dan and Julia and Ben and, and especially for Hannah. We thank you for the way that you brought their family together. Um, thank you for what a great example Craig is of, um, of living with you and listening to you and, and pursuing you. Father God, may we as a community come around this family and support them and encourage them and, and love them um, like you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.